You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. From the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And if, if that was us, we'd be like, what, what, what angel of the Lord? Well, we go on, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded, because that's what you do. And he took his wife, but he knew her not until she came, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. So of the four biographical accounts uh, of Jesus' life in ministry, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, of those four accounts, and, and really the whole of the New Testament, and if you think about it, the whole of the scriptures, there are only two accounts of Jesus' birth, and that they don't come from the lips of Jesus, they don't come from the Apostle Paul who penned many words in the New Testament, but they come in our teaching text, and they come in the gospel according to Luke. And even though these stories are sparse, like there's only a couple of them in the whole corpus of scripture, even though they're sparse, I imagine that whether you grew up in the church or not, you actually know these stories. Because these, these are the iconic stories. This is baby Jesus. This is the manger. This is like the wise men. We, we, we know these stories. We've rehearsed these stories. It's the, the countless pageants we've been to. It's the plays. You, like, you hear about it. Just as soon as Thanksgiving is over, you have Charlie Brown. You are waiting for it. You are ready. You see it all the time. And if it's, you're saying, Kyle, I'm not into a TV. Well, that's okay. Every time you're walking down your street, there's that one house that like sets up the little public diorama of Jesus's birth, even though Jesus is very white in that and he was a brown man from the Middle East. So, so like we have it all over on screens, in our ears, in little public dioramas on the streets. And yet every time that we walk by it, every time that we see it, we run the risk of actually missing it. Here's what I mean. Think about the space that you live in. And let's just um, like say, hypothetically say that you moved here to Des Moines about eight weeks ago. Just a hypothetical scenario. And let's say as you uh, moved here, there were some, some nail holes in one of your walls. And you thought, yeah, okay, so there's some nail holes, just a little spackle, a little touch-up paint, boom, I'm done. And now just in this hypothetical scenario, uh, let's say it's been six weeks since you've said that. And you walk by these nail holes multiple times a day, and you can now hardly remember how many of those little nail holes you have to fix in this hypothetical scenario. 
Because what, what your brain has started to do is your brain has started to let those little nail holes fade into the background. And this is what psychologists call spatial desensitization. And so th- this is exactly why you can walk into somebody else's home and you notice all of the little nail holes in their bathroom, remember, hypothetical, uh, but you don't actually notice the stain that's been on your carpet for three years. You know the one I'm talking about. Because spatial desensitization. You see it every day. Your brain, like slowly but surely, doesn't even register that it's there. And over the years, what I've observed is that this is actually taking place. That these stories are so familiar, they've just begun to fade into the background. We have this spatial desensitization with the Christmas story. And familiarity is a tricky thing because in one sense it's comforting, but in another sense, it makes us actually lose the Jesus that we encounter in the scriptures to the point where Christmas Jesus looks nothing like the Jesus we encounter on the rest of the pages in the New Testament. And so just to to be clear, like I... I am not here talking about mangers. I'm not talking about uh, the commercialization of Christmas or anything like it. We, we could have a great long chat about that if you wanted to. Uh, Kyle at thegatewaychurch.com, the ball's in your court. Um, but what I am talking about, what, what we're actually aiming to remember here this morning, this afternoon, there it is. We're aiming to remember the wonder and the beauty and the magnitude of the God of the cosmos having come to us. Like God putting on a bod. He came like through the womb of this unwed, small town, teenage girl. And, And oh yeah, he did this by creating this human inside of her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this Jesus who we encounter in the scriptures, he comes in simplicity, he comes in obscurity, and he comes with power. And yet, here we are today, lulled to sleep. Because I don't know if you knew this, when you were coming here today, it's in the 50s. What's happening? I said this on Sunday, but there's so many better things we can be doing. This is a giant interruption into your lives. So why are we here? Well, we're here because this Jesus is captivating and and he's sunk in to like our psyche. He's he's just hanging out in the back of our minds. And this time of year, for whatever reason, whether we like feel this moral obligation or not, we just like we step into uh, like a high school in downtown Des Moines and we just wonder because simplicity and obscurity and power don't quite make sense. And yet it is so beautiful. And so I, I hope that what we encounter here today will wake us up to the wonder of Jesus. And so if you haven't already, I just want to invite you to flip or tap your way on over to Matthew uh, chapter 1. This would be a great time to put your phones in the hands of your children. Uh, Somehow these glowing devices do a way of like just sucking them in. And so it's like a win-win because you're getting the Bible in front of them and um, they are distracted, I guess. No, don't do that. I don't know. Give them a paper Bible. Let's do that. Let's cultivate this type of learning. I digress. Uh, Matthew chapter 1 verse 22. This is what we read. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
So here is this haunting little verse tucked into our passage. And if you are wondering why in the world I would call this verse haunting, just jump up one verse. Verse 21, let's read it all together. So she, this is Mary, will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He will save his people from their sins. So I don't don't know if you knew this, at Christmas time, it's it's actually about God coming to address your sin. Merry Christmas. There it is. Somehow children get this reality of God come to us. So full disclosure, this is my goal this afternoon. Uh, Whether you've been coming to Gateway for a long time or this is your first time, um, and if it is, just once again, welcome. Baby Jesus, sin, it's gonna be a great afternoon. Uh, but, But really, here's my goal. It's to help us see, either for the first time or the first time in a long time, that this Jesus who has come to us has come in simplicity, in obscurity, And he's come to be with us. That's it. That he actually wants to be with us. And yet anytime there's somebody like a a preacher on a stage making a claim about the incarnation, that, that is that Jesus is more than just a wise sage in child form. Anytime somebody's making a claim that he is the God of the cosmos come to humanity in the flesh, there's four responses that emerge. And I'm, 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 uh, I'm not making these four responses up. I get this from this author named Sky Jatani. But there's generally these four responses to the incarnation. If that is like a fancy religious word for you that uh, is really distracting, just think carne asada, delicious, if you eat meat. Uh, carne asada, so carne and in. So in flesh, incarnation in flesh. And so this framework is actually gonna help us scaffold. These four responses are gonna help us scaffold the remainder of our time. And so this is all we're gonna do. We're gonna work through those and allow our text then to come to light at the very end. So the first response is the secular response. And this is what we will call life over God. And so these are the folks that scoff when they see the post on social media or they they hear one of their coworkers say, oh, he's the reason for the season." They actually, they like laugh and dismiss that because in this framework of life over God, Jesus might as well just go and bunk up with like Tinkerbell and the Easter Bunny and all of those characters. Because in this response, the trust is actually in ourselves. It's not outside of us, it's in us. And really, because the trust is in us and we have science, we don't really need anything else because we've debunked the supernatural and now we have the natural world to guide us and lead us. We've done away with those silly myths and now we can actually move forward with progress. So there's no demons, we have psychology. So we don't have to work, like mental illness has a proper framework in life over God. But life over God does do something that's interesting. Uh, It it recognizes that we live in this Christ-haunted landscape. But really what this position is saying is that uh, life with God is really like a bad hangover. 
And so what we need to do is we just need to puke it all up. We need to get this toxic religiosity out of our system and then we will be on our way uh, to flourishing in this human experience. And so part part of the challenge of this framework of life over God uh, is that the secular longings of the world, like just picture your workplace, the longings that are there, they ultimately lead to despair and there's no answer. And you know why? Because we're made in the image of God and because God has placed eternity in our hearts. And so you're darn right like the land is Christ haunted because he's trying to wake us up to the wonder. And somehow this season gives us this unique access to see the beauty and wonder of Jesus. And yet what this posture does, what this response does is it tries to power up over God. And from this position of life over God, it, it, it actually, it tries to say that uh, we can be our own gods. And even though we have the ambition to try and be our own gods, we don't have the resources to do it because what ends up showing up is our mortality. Like the relationship crumbles beneath our feet, even though we try to hold it together or they don't say yes, we don't get the raise, whatever like circumstance, like the diagnosis comes in, all of these things, it's somehow the godness of ourselves just crumbles beneath us. We actually, we don't have this type of power. And so that's our first response. Our second response is life under God. And so this is the religious response. This is what many of us actually hold true to. And so if the first response says that we need to exercise God, we need to get God out of our world, life under God says that there, no, 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 pump the brakes, there life over God. There actually are divine rules and we need to live under those divine rules in order to receive blessing. So if I obey, if, if, I, if I live under these rules, I will appease God and then I'll get his blessing. And so we actually get a picture of this from Jesus's own words. And, and we see this later on in the gospel according to Matthew. We see this in Matthew chapter 15. And this is what we read. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. See, the group that Jesus is talking to, or he's actually like giving some some stern words to, he's rebuking, is this group called the Pharisees. And like we Christians, we love, like pastors especially, we love to rail against the Pharisees. But if we're honest, most of us in this room would be Pharisees. So we just, we got got to figure that one out. Uh, But but Jesus is having these stern words. And these men, they actually have a, a pretty beautiful vision for life. They have this vision that every home would be holy. And what I mean is that every Hebrew home would be like this mini temple. And the, temp- the temple in the Hebrew framework, that, that's like where the hot spot of God's personal presence dwells. And so the Pharisees, they want every home to be a hot spot of God's personal presence. But what they do is they think, okay, h- how do we get that? Well, we observe the law. And so the Pharisees, they look back over their collective history and they see that, that their God is a God of promises and a God of covenant. He's one who binds himself to his people. And he says that if you keep my covenants, they'll be blessing. If you break my covenants, they'll be cursing. So, okay, the Pharisees are looking at this framework and they're going, if, if we're just obedient, then blessings. But if, but if we're disobedient, if there's faithlessness, then there's cursing. So what we'll do is we'll set up this like barrier to the law. So we won't even touch, like we won't even get onto the edge of the law 
so we don't disobey it, so that we can have the blessing. So this is, this is a great framework. We'll just set up stuff back here. We're, we're not even playing on the edge of the cliff. Fantastic. This is purity culture in the life of the church. Like, don't get close to the, don't get close to the cliff. How far is too far? It's, that's the same question. You're setting up a whole nother list of things that don't get to the heart of the law. And so this is what these men do. And you know what's amazing? They actually start to do it. They, they actually start to observe the letter of the law. Can you believe that? Like human ambition is pretty amazing. And yet, though, like even though they're observing the letter of the law, their hearts are far from God. And so Jesus, he has little to no patience for their religious fervor, for their religiosity. And in fact, uh, later on, after Matthew 15, we see this in Matthew 23. And Jesus says this to this group of people. These words are pretty intense. So he says, you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. That's just a convert. And when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So they come and they like invite people to live in this life under God. And in so doing, it's actually the inbreaking of hell on earth, not the inbreaking of heaven on earth. And so their rule following is a hell to live under. And Jesus just calls them on it. And so even though they keep the letter of the law, they've forgotten mercy and justice and faith which is at the heart of the law. And so Jesus has these firm words for them because the law never attends to our sin in such a way that it would save us from our sin. The law's only intention is to point out our sin. And so the law is good because it exposes us and yet the law has no ability to save us from our sin. And so Jesus is just saying, hey, um, you broke, like, this isn't gonna do anything, fellas. I don't know if Jesus ever said fellas, but I feel like he's the type of guy who could say fellas. See, Jesus has come to actually be the one who saves us from our sin. Do you remember our passage? She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. By the way, Jesus is this Hebrew name that means Yahweh saves. So you shall call his name Yahweh saves. And then get this, and Yahweh, he will save his people from their sins. This is why he's come. And so we sing these songs. We look at the little public dioramas, but if we're careful, we will miss what Jesus has come to be and do for us. And so for these people, for for these Pharisees, for many of us who pride ourselves on keeping the letter of the law, like Jesus is a straight up affront Because what Jesus does, he comes with grace, but he comes with truth. So he comes with this one-two punch of grace and truth. And and you know what grace does? Like, grace says you don't have to do anything. You don't have to earn it. Grace says this is a gift I'm giving to you. Don't do anything. If you you say, well, what do I owe you? No, you don't get it because that's grace. And so Jesus comes with grace and truth and he is an affront to life under God because your religiosity, it will not, it can not put the God of the cosmos under your thumb. And that's our second response. And our third response is life from God. And life from God is the view that God is here to kind of um, be this 
Butler, this therapist, kind of like a cosmic therapist. There's this uh, thinker, his name's Christian Smith. He calls this, um, oh goodness, therapeutic deism. So God's just here to be this vending machine for me. And what this results in is Christian consumerism, where God, he lives to attend to my needs. And in this response, if we're not careful, we actually don't want God. We just want God what he can give us. And this is a slippery thing because God is the giver of good gifts. So we, like, like that's true. And yet we have to check our motives in the midst of this framework, this response of life from God. And so what we, because what we could end up asking are these questions like, well, was the worship good? How did you like the aesthetics? Was was it too dark in there? Could you take notes? How were the kids, how was the kids ministry? How was it, was it, was it good? Were they excited? Let me see the, let me see what they drew on. Give it to me. Give it to me. Come on. Like this, and this is what we do. And this might be a silly example, but, but this is what life from God looks like in our world. And so just let that sit with you. I'm just here to cheer you up on Christmas Eve. Um, let's, let's just keep going, though. So if that's our third response, let's just do a little recap. So we, we can dismiss God as though we're over him. We can live as though he's under the control of our morality. Or, or we can live from him. Or there's this fourth response where we can respond with this uh, posture of life for God. And now this is, this is the one that as I was like working through this, that um, you know when you like see the, the lights come on behind your car and you're about to get pulled over? You know that feeling that like in your gut? I don't know if it's gonna come up or come out, like it's just that feeling. That's, that's what came for me in this next one. This is a life for God. And this posture says that my worth to God is caught up in what I do for God. See, a posture of life for God is constantly asking, how can I prove that I'm valuable? And really this posture functions with like this uh, orphan mentality. It's, it's not a posture that recognizes that in Christ, that we are loved, that, that we are a beloved daughter, a beloved son. Instead, it operates from a, like a place of lack where it's constantly wondering like, okay, is this, is this enough? Like looking over our shoulders, asking, okay, is God, is God gonna approve of this one? There's no security of our identity in this one. And in all these responses, ultimately ours is not the position of judge. Like we don't stand here uh, t- to say, oh, I, I, I totally know what Jim is. I totally know what his response is. Not at all. Jesus alone stands as judge. So take yourself out of that high and mighty position. And just if you ever, if you could, if you're so bold, like turn this question on yourself. Do any of these describe you? Do any of these responses describe you? Are you over God? Are you under his, are you trying to get him under your control? Are you trying to live from him or for him? Like you think you actually don't need God because, um, you've figured life out pretty well on your own or you've been terribly religious and now you're bitter because that bum sitting next to you only comes to church like once a month and you, you see them getting all the blessings. Do you feel any of those? You don't have to respond. Maybe talk about that on the car ride home. That'll be fun. <laughs> don't send me any emails about it though. That'd be great. Um, wouldn't it be a sweet gift this Christmas if we could actually know what God wants? like what he wants our response to be. 
Let me, let me just say, yes. Yes, it would be a glorious thing to know what the God of the cosmos wants from us. And so if you will, this is gonna take about four and a half minutes. It's gonna feel a, a touch bit longer, uh, but it won't be. Um, and so here's what we're gonna do. We're actually gonna go from Genesis to Revelation. I'm gonna lay bare that, no, I'm just, we actually are gonna go from Genesis to Revelation, not one page at a time. But I just want us to see what God's words are to us, what he actually wants from us. Are you ready? You can try and keep up if you want, but we're gonna be bouncing around a little bit. Oh, I wanted us to do one thing. Is this cool? Okay, Every, you're gonna see on the screen behind me, there's gonna be scripture. There's gonna be these bolded letters and it's gonna be the letters W-I-T-H. It spells with. And now I want you with like unexpected fervor and charisma for like four o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon to scream, not scream, but loudly project with. How's that sound? <laughs> I can work with that, Dan. I can work with one. Okay, it could be awkward. Go with it. So here, let's just, let's just try this. God's walking in the cool of the day. He's doing this. He's with Jacob. Okay, and now, now we get to, here. that's in Genesis 3. He's walking with humanity in the cool of the day. Then here's the first one. Then you have Jacob. Behold, I am. So good. Maybe a little bit more. Let's try, try it again. Behold, I am you and will keep you wherever you go. And then you get Moses leading the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And this is what he hears. He said, but I will be and you, <laughs> and this shall be a sign for you. And then you get Joshua who's taking over from Moses and he hears this, just as I was with Moses. <laughs> oh gosh, here we go. We got it. I don't know if that was, well. so I will be with you and will not leave you or forsake you. And, and get this, it doesn't stop here. We, we're going to keep going. Uh, because as God sets up the judges to lead these wayward people who are Israel, um, he calls Gideon this judge to call them back to faithfulness. And then the angel of the Lord shows up. This is like God's presence with Gideon and he's, gonna, he's there to strengthen him. It's, it's this moment where he's asking Gideon to gird up his loins and get ready to go into battle against the Midianites. And, and Gideon's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I think you got the wrong guy. This is the fleece story. A couple times he lays it down. Check these words out. This is what we get, Judges 6. I will be you. <laughs> you shall strike down the Midianites as one man. And then we get to Isaiah. And this is Isaiah in the time of the exile. God brings these words of comfort to Hezekiah. And we read this, fear not for I am you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. And so we have in Genesis, in the patriarchs, in Exodus, in the conquest narratives, in Judges, in the prophets, in exile, every epoch, God says, I will be with you. And yet the Hebrew Bible is like this giant cliffhanger because God says he wants to be with them and then 400 years coming. And then we get this in Mark chapter three. And he appointed the 12, whom he also named apostles. Now this is Jesus, so that they might be him and he might send them out to preach 
And then we get Jesus in the gospel according to John and his great high priestly prayer. And listen to what Jesus has to say. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be me, where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And then this is like my fave. Uh, This is a vision of the end of the age in Revelation 22. I told you we go Genesis to Revelation. And this is what we read. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is man and he will dwell and they will be his people and God himself will be them as their God. You see, the God that we find in the pages of the scripture is saying to us time and time and time and time again that he wants to be with you. So do you know what he wants from you? You. He wants you. Because he's put eternity in your heart because you bear the image of God because there's these longings that these responses simply cannot lead to this life of seeing God. And yet, you know what we suffer from? We suffer from this little thing called spatial desensitization. And so we hear these stories and they slowly slip into the background. And maybe this moment comes where we wake up to the reality of God but then we're trying to like get something from him or control him with our morality. All the while, he said time and time again, he just wants to be with you. He doesn't want your mission. He doesn't want your good works. He doesn't want any of that stuff. He just wants you. And so this Christmas Eve, this is what we get to sit with. And this is why our teaching text is so haunting. So just look once more at verse 22. This is how it starts. All of this took place. All of this. What's all of this? Well, the beginning of the gospel according to Matthew starts with this genealogy, which is our favorite thing to read at the beginning of any book. It's just a long list of names. But, he, but what Matthew is saying is that everything to Abraham, all of this, including the engagement of Mary and Joseph, Joseph's humility to actually bind himself to Mary, to wait upon him, not to mention Mary's obedience. I mean, come on, like she's an unwed teenage girl who has like an angel come to her and say, um, yes, yeah, so, so I was thinking about the savior of the world coming through you. How's that sound? And then she like sings a song about it and is just like her obedience ought to like bring us to our knees. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken that by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so the reason that we stop our lives, that we disrupt the flow, that we like herd children who are like cats to get them here is because, you know what we're gonna do tonight? We're gonna be with friends and we're gonna be with family and over the next few days, we're gonna actually like try and celebrate something. But we're gonna be with people who have vastly different political views. People are gonna say things that frustrate you. And so we take this story into our hearts. We actually look at the nail holes in the wall because they need our attention. 
We don't want to be these people who have this spatial, like we don't want to forget. We don't want to be desensitized to the reality of God having come to us in simplicity and obscurity. You say, well, Kyle, well, that was like 2,000 years ago, man. But check out these, these words. This, this is Jesus' words that ought to give us assurance. So he has come, he is living, and he, these are the words that he has for his followers. It says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Just stop right there. Forever. H- how long is forever? Is it like the whole time? Yeah, yeah, it is. We don't need to go any further than that. Forever. God's word has come to us. It is put on flesh. And it's come in the most unexpected of ways. It's come like we have, as a babe. And so the invitation that we have today is to cease our striving. It's over. It's done with. He just wants you, all your quirks, all your baggage, all of it. That's why this is haunting, because God actually wants to be with our brokenness. That's Christmas. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.